Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Listeners, welcome to episode number four of the second season of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Today is August the 2nd, 2018. My name is Rudolf. I am your host, speaking to you from nearby the lovely capital of Austria, Vienna. And believe me, it's hot here. Now, this is finally the return of Thoughts Hermes to its regular schedule. And I'm so glad we are finally there. Those of you who followed my different messages on social media and on the website know that there were several obstacles also after my professional stress time, which then caused a further delay. But now we are back and I hope you will keep your fidelity to the podcast. Our featured guest on this episode is Dr. Stephen Flowers at the occasion of his book Original Magic. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. I will also present two exciting new books to you after the interview and I present the music of Finnish occultist Aki Cederberg, whom I am sure many of you know also as an author. More on that later on. The news section is not present in this issue because I am rethinking its format for the future. If you want to know more about this, well, you will have to stay on until the end of this episode where I will tell you more. For those of you who have not yet been here before, let me give you quickly the usual information. Thoth Hermes is a podcast presenting extensive interviews with important authors and figures from the world of the Western esoteric tradition, as well as some music, reviews, news, etc. Please do also visit our website www.thoshermes.com that spells T-H-O-T-H-E rmes.com. There you can find all the show notes, previous episodes, etc. The site is now running on a different server, which also has taken a few more days than anticipated, but now it is much faster, more secure, and will be able to accept the new features that Thoth Hermes will be presenting to you in the near future. Thor's Hermes podcast can not only be found on its website, 
but also on Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Android, Blueberry, and an ever-increasing number of podcast providers. And yes, Source Hermes is now also present on two new important podcast channels. You will now find us also on Spotify and on Google Podcast. And I am very excited about that. And now let's talk about... And now some feedback. You made me very happy with your response to the last episode with Tobias Churgen in April. I got so much really nice feedback, personal, saying that you're happy the show is still around and individually for this show also. You seemed to like Tobias British with quite a lot. And I did too. But I was overwhelmed by the fact that the week when I released the show became immediately the third best week in listener numbers ever since the creation of Thoth Hermes. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. I am so glad you like our program. And I hope it will continue like that. Thoth Hermes is definitely now back on track. I invested into the new website server, made some improvements in sound recording, which you should be able to hear in the near future, and new podcast distribution has started. And I'm planning on feature episodes on topics that might be interesting to many of you for the future. So Thoth Hermes is definitely very much alive, and I will need you both as listeners and for your input. During each episode at this moment, I tell you in what way you can give your input and feedback to me. The usual good old email on info at or of course via Facebook or Twitter. Then it is possible through the contact page on the website and there you will find also a possibility to send me a 90-second voicemail for free. Honestly, the later has not yet been loosed a lot by you guys in the past. Come on, don't be so shy. But I have last week received a very kind voice message by a listener from South Africa, Eric Anderson, and I'm happy to share this with you. You can hear that he was a bit surprised at the end when the 90 seconds came to an end and shut him off, but what he had to say before that was extremely flattering. Here comes Eric. Hi Rudolf. Um, not like me to send a voice message. I usually send emails. Um, I'm sitting here on the southern tip of Africa, in South Africa, a town called Pretoria. It's a beautiful, sunny, late winter morning, and I've just discovered your podcast. Um, I've been listening to season one, so I'm only on episode two, and I am so, I feel so great about this discovery. Um, there is so much soul in what you do, and I've, you know, I've been teaching meditation and Kabbalah for a while and just been feeling a bit isolated um, 
and your dis- this discovery of your podcast has just made me feel instantly connected to a, gr- a global community. Um, yeah, as well as just listening to the stories of people who have been there and um, the pitfalls and their discoveries. Yeah, and wow, um, I must say, I really been. I think I've been searching for some something like this for quite a few years. So, thanks so much. Um, Thank you so much, Eric. I'm glad you like our show and hope this will also be the case in the future. Now, let's listen to some music before we get to the interview. I'm sure many of you have heard about Finnish occultist Aki Siederberg. He recently published an extremely interesting book on the Kali Yuga. You might also want to listen to the interview about that book that my friend Greg Kaminsky and I had with Aki on Greg's show Occult of Personality, where I have the pleasure and honor to be his co-host. What probably not so many of you know is that Aki Siederberg is also a very fine musician. And I'm glad he has given to me three of his pieces in order to be played on the show. He's worked with groups ranging musically from ritual ambient to neo-folk and even pop and chanson. Most notably, Hilo Manash and Ma. More recently, he has collaborated with Herr Lounge Corps, I hope I pronounced that correctly, as well as with Technosophic Band of Esoteric Explorer Gerhard Hallstatt by the name of Allerseelen. We will be able to hear Ma and Herr Lounge Corps today. And our first piece is by the group Ma and called Neiden Merkien Allah in English under our signs from the album Tuchkan Kantayat. I hope you're impressed by my Finnish pronunciation. And that means Bearers of Ash, and it was released on the label Anima Arctica. Enjoy! Thank you. 
Aki Siedebergs and Maas under our signs or Neiden Merkien Alla in his native Finnish language. You will find English lyrics and a link to Aki's homepage on the music page of the Thoth Hermes website. Here comes the interview. I don't think that I need to introduce Dr. Stephen Flowers to most of you out there. He has been an important teacher and academic and has written many interesting books on many varied topics in magic and the occult. Some of you might know him best for his books on runes, others regarding his take on the Fraternitas Saturni. You might realize when you listen to this interview that we have already recorded it a bit over half a year ago. My apologies. So when we talk about his upcoming book on the Fraternitas Saturni, this is now already out and available. And you will also find details about it on the show notes on the website. Also, the other book he will be talking about has already been announced for the near future. So look out for that. Stephen lives in an area in Texas where the internet connections is not so good so he preferred to do this interview via phone. This is just an information for those of you who might hear a kind of different type of sound. And now, without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Stephen Flowers. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome on Thoth Hermes podcast, Dr. Stephen Flowers. We are speaking to him at his home in Texas, and I'm very honored and pleased to have you with us tonight. Good evening, Dr. Flowers. Good evening. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. There could be many reasons for us to meet tonight here on Thought Hermes, but the real reason this time is your new book, Original Magic, The Rituals mm -hmm. and Initiations of the Persian Medi. But... Before we get there, I would like to ask you to talk a bit about yourself. You are a really important person in the esoteric and occult worlds. Many of our listeners do, of course, know you, but maybe they don't know who is behind the books, who is behind the man. So, Dr. Flowers, what brought you to the studies of the esoteric and the occult? What guided you there? Well, I was always, as a young person, or as uh, before I got out of uh, high school, gymnasium, uh, uh, before I went to college, I was interested in, in things like uh, vampires, and this was back in the late 60s, 1960s, early 70s, before the craze really became great. I was interested in horror films and all of that kind of thing as a child, and so I was uh, interested in that. <laughs> And uh, and as I matured, then my interests matured, but uh, they were pretty much within the realm of what you would expect from the late 60s, early 70s, interest in matters occult. But as I found myself in university, I was situated at the University of Texas at Austin, and there at this place, we had a great 
faculty involved with mythology, history of religion, and things of that nature. So I became exposed to these kind of ideas on a more academic level, and so I began to synthesize these two poles, as it were, of, of rational scientific investigation with the, the occult interest, and I think uh, created, you know, with my interest in runes at that time, and continuing interest in them, obviously, kind of a synthesis that was uh, potent in the sense that it uh, what became a formula for me for uh, examining many kinds of esoteric fields, a thing which I call the Polarian method of synthesizing the rational scientific with the uh, subjective interior work. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced what many people who are trying to combine the science and the, the practice, let's call it like that, within the occult and the esoteric worlds, have you experienced difficulties? I don't mean personal difficulties from your end, but from the other side, from people talking to you, working with you, studying with you? Well, uh, yes, of course, there's always uh, at both ends. Uh, one might uh, say, well, uh, that flowers, he, he's too uh, ra rational, too too uh, scientific, pedantic. He thinks there's a right and a wrong, perhaps, or that, you know, there are just 24 runes when I think there are 56 and a half, or something like that, mm -hmm. that kind of totally subjective end of the pole. And then on the other hand, of course, from the scientific standpoint there, then those people will reject any kind of subjective interior component, believing falsely that, uh, that their you know, science is completely objective, which of course it never is or can be, as long as there is a subject that is a doer, yeah. as long as there is a doer of this study, there is and must be a subjective component, and in the true and accurate analysis of something, even scientifically, uh, we have to, the hermeneutics of it demand a kind of a sympathy or empathy for the so-called object of our study in order to come to a truly accurate interpretation. Yes. Uh, so Indeed. that's something that I battled sort of within the runological scientific community. They have gone in, uh, completely, uh, not all, some of the older guards still have a more balanced view, but younger runologists, for example, in the, in the academy are really totally fixated on linguistic phenomena and sort of are completely reject anything magical having to do with the runes and that sort of thing. So that's yes. been a, a problem on that end, you know. I'm sure. I mean, I know you speak my language, German, very well, and I find it very interesting that the word Geisteswissenschaft for sciences mm -hmm. of the mind, so to speak, has mm -hmm. been more and more pushed out of universities over here in the German-speaking world, and it's replaced by social uh, science or cultural mm -hmm. science or all kinds of different words, but the right. mind science, yeah, so to speak, has gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, when the materialist 
wing, if you will, a Marxist kind of interpretation of reality, which doesn't even have a place for Geist, then of course, how could you have it at the university as since it doesn't exist, right, from their uh, standpoint. So that makes a big problem. Absolutely. Well, speaking about background still for a minute, mm -hmm. you studied in Germany, didn't you? Can you tell us maybe just two minutes in, about your background there? In Göttingen, yes. Yeah, in Göttingen, I studied runology with uh, Professor Dr. Klaus Duve, and uh, so that's what I, as I, when I was doing my doctoral dissertation over here, my doctor father was uh, Edgar Polome, who's a famous Indo-Europeanist, mm -hmm. and hence through him and others is the sort of gateway to this interest in Iranian ideas, Persian ideas, old Persian, ancient Persian ideas, since they are so uh, much connected to our own uh, tradition, although <laughs> this is often uh, greatly ignored or because of the prejudice for classical, for the connections between Germania and Rome and Greece, those are, mm. are, are, are well studied, but the uh, connections between the Iranian world, the Scythians, Sarmatians, Alans, and the uh, Germanic world and the Celtic world uh, go ignored mainly because they're prehistoric and they're not, there's no written text about them or that document this. So then, therefore, you can see how the prejudice towards the written word becomes a way of deforming history because it ignores reality that existed in a world in which writing, except for runes, for example, was uh, unknown and unwanted. Yes. Caesar says of the Druids, they said they don't write their sacred uh, uh, lore down because they think they will profane it by writing it down. The, Indi the ancient Indians had the same idea, although they had carried on the recitation of the Veda, just like the Avesta was recited in the Iranian world for centuries before it was ever written down, much later. So uh, that is something people uh, forget. I have a article coming out in the next issue of Tear, the journal Tear, that details or begins to look at the, the connections between the Germanic and the Iranian worlds. Now, this was something that was quite a bit written about in the early part of the century by German scholars such as Franz Rolf Schröder. Mm -hmm. He wrote several things on that topic. But it just didn't really strike deep roots, although I think there is there for an academic uh, life, there's a whole world, a whole specialty there waiting to be discovered. If you see uh, in the museum there in Berlin, you have the, uh, the, the spearheads, for example, of Damsdorf and Kovel. Uh, they were found in that area that have uh, runes on them, and they also have Sarmatian tamgas uh, on there. And these were not spearheads for things, you know, used in battle, but they were 
symbolic scepters or symbols of rulership. And, of course, the fact that they have Iranian symbols and Germanic symbols on them indicate this symbiosis between these peoples and rare tribes that came together and uh, fought side by side and were allied with one another. And so, yeah. That's something that uh, needs to be more deeply studied. We will be coming back to that in a minute, because that's also kind of core to the book we are going to be talking about. I just wanted to pick you up on something you just said, that the writing was banned by uh, Iranians, by Druids, because they didn't want to profane the sacred and the sacred words. Mm -hmm. Was it profanation only, or was it also a question of secrecy and keeping the knowledge within a closed group? Right, well, even writing it down, uh, you can still keep it secret. For example, the Egyptians or others, or the uh, Sumerians and all of the people of Mesopotamia simply created writing systems that were so complex that only priests could read them. Mm -hmm. So that's why they call them hieroglyphics, priest writing. Uh, so you can still keep it secret because you make it unbelievably complex for anybody to read, except for the initiate. When in fact, of course, as the Greeks discovered, we make X number of sounds. We have X number of, of characters for each one of those sounds. You can learn to read and write in an afternoon if you're clever enough. And so they were the first ones to really make a totally phonetic script and, and so forth. So now with the runes, they would also be easy to learn, but they did keep them within uh, a very select group of people in Germania. At the most, 1%, probably much less, of the people were ever for a thousand years literate in runes, for example. It was just also a priestly kind of writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though it was fairly simple from a uh, standpoint of the history of alphabets is concerned, it's still was retained within this uh, group. But that is an important thing, but there's an importance there that uh, it goes beyond just saying, well, we're going to keep it secret for some uh, uh, nefarious purpose or some manipulative purpose, but rather uh, if you don't keep it secret within a certain group, then uh, they, it does become profaned in the sense that people misuse them. I don't mean to misuse it for, for evil purposes or anything like that, mm -hmm. but just make it so that it's, uh, it loses its special status and yeah. so therefore much of its power. Yeah, it's like in the theater, you let somebody peek too much into the wings and then they know all the tricks and that doesn't make theater interesting. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Right, so then there, you know, there's a professional, just like people in high-tech industry nowadays, uh, they make things perhaps more complicated than they need to be just because if they everybody could do it, then a lot of people would be out of work. Yeah. So the same thing is true of scribes in ancient times or people like that. That, you know. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned the Iranian tradition several times already now. So my next question for you was now starting to talk a bit about the book Original Magic. Well, what did you initially 
bring to the idea to talk about that subject, about the initiations and rituals of the Persian Magi, of the Matsden magical system, as it is called. Tell us a bit mm -hmm. about the reasons and how you initially thought to write that book and to... Yeah, well, first, uh, I've written three books on the topic of Iranian ideas in the past four years or so. Mm -hmm. One of them is called The the Good Religion. Another one is called The Mazdan Way, which is more of a general uh, essays on topics of interest. Yes. And then this book, Original Magic. Now, The Good Religion goes into rituals and beliefs and so forth for the practice of the Mazdan religion in the West as part of this movement called the Occidental Temple of the Wise Lord, the Western Temple of, of Ahura Mazda. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, that is oriented towards group ideas, and there's just not that many people involved in this to say, well, go down to your local temple and become a part of it. That doesn't exist. So there has to be a method by which uh, individuals who have interest in this can gain inner uh, accomplishments and inner uh, spiritual and magical attainment through a private and individual study uh, to, to, to begin to uh, grow this uh, movement one person at a time on an individual basis first. And so that's what this book was written for. It is very much similar in its uh, scope and uh, in certain aspects of its method to one of my best-known works, and that is The Nine Doors of Midgard, yes. called uh, Die Neun Tore von Midgard, Midgard. in German. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so it has a method to uh, a daily work for uh, an initiatory system and a one-year curriculum so that uh, the person doesn't have to say, this is what you must do, but at least it is a guideline to say, really, to, to make progress rapidly, you need to work every day, do something every day, and study intellectually, read the background and the myth and the religion and the lore and all of that sort of thing, and then do something actively, ritually, meditatively, etc., every day, according to a system. Uh, in the case of the runes and Nine Doors of Midgard, we have the runes, but in the case of the Iranian tradition, it's something else entirely, and that is the system of time divisions, uh, wherein each month, each uh, month of the year has uh, 30 days in it, sometimes a little more or less, uh, but each one, each day has a yazata, an angel or god or goddess attached to it, mm -hmm. and that is your focus for that day, for meditation, for internalization of that principle. Right. And so uh, that, that, that forms the, the basis of the curriculum uh, on a daily basis. Then the progressively, you include more elaborate, although it's not, it doesn't become excessively elaborate, but a little more elaborate as far as a ritual is concerned and the ceremonial of it uh, a bit more until you have a 
certain level of understanding and active uh, creativity within the system. Right. I mean, that's something we really need to underline here, because when you just see the book and read the title and its subtitle, you're not immediately aware that this is a very practical book. It's not just talking about our history or whatever, but it really incites yeah. the reader to practice that type of magic. Mm -hmm. There is some history and things like that there because because of the great deal of uh, lack of information about the Iranian world, uh, or more usually, uh, in addition to the lack, what we do think we know is almost all wrong. Yes. You know, because of the age-old conflict between the so-called East and the so-called West, which yes. begins with the Greeks and the Persians, which is a uh, product of politics of approximately 500 B.C., and it's not anything real in the sense that really these two peoples were much closer to one another and more uh, akin folk than than they were dire enemies. They were just military, political, economic enemies, but they were not uh, at odds with one another really that much culturally. Uh, philosophy of the Greeks uh, is almost entirely originally taken from Persian ideas. The uh, Zarathustra is really the first philosopher, the first true philosopher. By that I mean when someone had his insight, you see, that, wait, there's only one true God for all the universe, and that is absolute focused consciousness. Mm -hmm which is Ahura Mazda, that is Lord Wisdom. And all the other gods and goddesses, etc., are uh, derived or derivative or emanations from this one principle of consciousness in various forms and aspects. And so that moment of insight where he was able to say, uh, these gods and goddesses that I, myself, Zarathustra, am a priest of, the way my brethren think of that is that they think of the gods as sort of like humans. They're kind of like humans. They hate things. They love things. They're jealous. They are vengeful. They are all the things, except they're just a little smarter than humans, and they live a whole lot longer than humans. But that's what that's the only difference. Yes. Whereas uh, Zarathustra had this insight, which is called Daina. That's what it means, religion in this system, or more specifically and precisely, it means insight. He had this insight. Once you have this insight, then you are transformed when you truly understand it that these things are principles, abstract principles, and the human mind, human soul, which is called the Fravashi in this tradition, is a one of these. We, as individuals, have this 
spark of the divine, as uh, Meister Eckhart taught us, in a, from a, in a Christian context or a pseudo-Christian context, the idea that we uh, we have a a bit of divine principle within each individual human being, and it's that thing which we to which we turn our attention and which we develop in the process of magic, uh, which is the true uh, uh, evolution information of this entity within ourselves. Alistair Crowley is famous for saying magic is about gaining knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel. Well, in that formula, he is precisely, whether he was aware of it or not, I don't know, uh, replicating the ideology of Zarathustra, Mm -hmm. which is magic is about uh, gaining knowledge from and interaction with your own divine principle, which is the Fravashi, which is a destined to become godlike in the end and to then become the most optimal warrior in the army of Ahura Mazda against the forces of the Daiva and Angra Mainyu, the, the wicked spirit, as were. Which is when we hear this idea, this fixation that Zarathustra had on good and evil, one, one great miss in interpretation or misunderstanding uh, of this system is that it is, okay, dualistic, yes, but it is moral dualism between good and bad things, mm-hmm. by which we mean good things are things which make you smarter, richer, more powerful, uh, more healthy, uh, more beautiful, everything. It, all those things are good. Everything that's bad is that which hurts you, which makes you poor, which makes you sick, which makes you stupid, which makes you ignorant. And those forces or those signals and paradigms are synonymous with the divas. And those things which make for good results are synonymous with the yazatas, which means literally those things were worthy of worship. Right. And so that, but the dichotomy is not, and absolutely not, between matter and spirit. That is a heresy inspired by Zarathustra's dualism, but a complete and utter misreading of its uh, uh, meaning. Uh, but it was attractive to the, you know, the person or the mindset which uh, wants a kind of an easy or obvious answer that uh, spirit is good, matter is evil, and then the world is bad, I'm mad. Uh, St. Augustine was, by background, a Manichaean, and hence these feelings and thoughts are really embedded in Christianity to this day. These uh, ideas of the body is bad, the world is bad, uh, etc., etc. But in the Zarathustra's ideology, the world matter is good. It is the bulwark and the fortress against evil. It is a trap for uh, evil things because it has to uh, uh, act within it. It makes them their for humanity or human beings who are to the last individual we see on this planet, they are all bare or contain or are manifestations of the Fravashi from above, this sort of angelic being who volunteered to come here to 
become involved in this. But everyone in the process of coming into being and living in a world which is beset with these uh, attempts to to uh, lie to you. What is the lie? They always talk about in the system, the lie. We are fighting against the lie, the druge, it's called. The lie is you are you are bad, you are stupid, you are mortal. These kind of things are lies. And they keep that they being whispered into your ear in order to make you uh, become discouraged and become uh, disheartened and become unhappy and become depressed and all of the things that the divas delight in. But the azatas are trying to tell you, you are good. You are here. You are a volunteer for the good. You have just forgotten it. You have been wounded by experiences inspired by the lie, but really you are, you are good, your body is good, this world is good, and we are here to make it uh, better, to become a, a uh, force for this in this world, not just uh, contemplating things and becoming all spiritualized, but that's necessary, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, and by good, it always means effective, powerful uh, thoughts, words, deeds, not just, oh, it's a, he's nice, you know, he never says anything bad about me, well, not that kind of good, but rather effective and powerful, and those kind of things, first thought, then formulated into an intelligible form, intellectually in words, and then in action. And that that is the root of the moral teachings of Zarathustra. Uh, so that's uh, part of it. But it, uh, magic is about this self-development of this pravashi within, and then activizing its power in uh, your, your life and in the world and in you know people around you. Yes. Could one say that the Zoroastrian religion, after what you just said, is not so? Its aim is not so much a transcendent aim, but rather a, an earthly aim. So to to explain life and what you do with it, rather than become a spirit-minded person in order to achieve something after life. Right. That all will take care of itself. There's plenty of lore having to do with what the post-mortem existence and all of that sort of thing is all about and what's going mm -hmm. to happen and, you know, judgment and then the crossing. These are some of the things that are very familiar from the Germanic world. Uh, there's a bridge there and you person crosses it and it's kind of treacherous, shaking, trembling bridge and you are met by a, a female figure, Valkyria in the north, uh, Uh, Diana, your, your, the manifestation of your uh, soul, etc., in, uh, in the Iranian tradition, and you are judged, and if you've done more good things than bad things, then you were you know, passed on, and everything is cool and great, mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing. All those kind of, that lore, uh, all sounds familiar, Indo-European oh, stuff, or really so, yes. Irano-Germanic kind of uh, uh, lore, But that's all very fine and good to read about and think about. But that's going to, the work is here and now. 
mm-hmm. in my life, in my soul, in my body, right here, right now, I have work to do today. And I have work to do to to get to make the best possible uh, outcome for myself and for the world. I've got to focus on the here and now. And I don't mean you know it is spiritual. It is material. It is equal in both. Mm-hmm. The matter is as holy. Uh, you see throughout the Zoroastrian uh, um, sacred texts and so forth that uh, the matter objects in matter. Uh, such as water or mountains or, or fire and so forth, are, are, are not just material symbols of something better, but rather are material versions of those other things which are equally good and holy. Right. But the good is also a matter of balance. The, uh, you used to know this uh, in, like, in German, uh, in English it's a little bit the same, but uh, in German it's very stark, the idea that uh, good and bad things have to do with uh, too much or too little of something. For example, in uh, a schlimm and schlecht. Yes. Schlimm in English is slim, and schlecht is slight. Both mm-hmm. mean things that are obviously mean little, a little bit of something, not too, not enough of something. Mm-hmm. So, things that are bad can be uh, either a deficit, a deficient, or excess, like evil. Uh, evil means too much, overly much of something. Mm-hmm. So, if you have something like water is necessary to life, is holy, but uh, tell that to a drowning man. Uh Too much of something in the wrong place, and it's imbalanced and it does harm. So it is good things are good, but only when they are in their proper balance and place. And so ritual and uh, ceremonial and the art form of this uh, ritual in Zarathustran magic is a sort of a a rehearsal for the kind of activity that bleeds over then into your thoughts, words, and deeds of putting things into beautiful, harmonious balance and uh, expression of these powers. As always in our extensive interviews, we are now going to take a short break here and we'll listen to another piece of music by Finnish occultist Aki Siederberg, this time with the group Herr Lounge Corps. This piece is called Initials BB and is meant as a tribute to the French maiden embodied as Brigitte Bardot. Herr Lounge Corps with Aki Siederberg. Itsekseni alamaissa, 
jossain englantilaisessa baarissa, Lontoon sydämessä, lukien hirveä rakkautta, kirjoittanut Paulissa. Minulle ilmestyi visio, visio viskisodassa. Imperaattorin kiiltävät hänen kupeellaan, pronssia kultaa. Platina kaivertaa häntä kylmällä kehällään. Orion merkit jokaisessa sormessaan. Initials BB, a tribute to Brigitte Bardot, 
by Herr Launchkorps and Aki Sederberg. And now let us return to the second part of our talk with Dr. Stephen Flowers and his take on ancient Persian and Zoroastrian magic. You said two or three things, Dr. Flowers. I would like to take you on one tiny question. I think it's tiny. Talking about Zoroastra and about the other deities, as you said, would you see the Persian religion, the Zoroastrian religion, rather as a monotheistic or a polytheistic strain? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I think that it is absolutely both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is, there is only one absolute God for all conscious and sentient beings throughout the cosmos. Mm -hmm. I do not care whether they look like squids or not. <laughs> They're on an aquatic planet in the Andromeda, the Strain, or whatever. They, if they're conscious beings, they are self-aware conscious beings, then their God is the same as this God. It is the same God throughout the entire universe. That is absolute focused consciousness. So in that sense, it is monotheistic. But this entity cannot or chooses not to uh, act in any kind of uh, isolated way. Now, and so the other gods and goddesses, the other Yazatas, are there as uh, helpers. They're called hamkars. That means hamas, co-workers. You know, they are co-workers with Ahura Mazda. And Ahura Mazda, you know, in theology, just sort of as you as a child or a young person starts to think about Christian theology and people tell you God is all good, all knowing and all powerful. And you go, uh, something's wrong with that formula. Because when I look around in this world, I know something's wrong with that formula or something is wrong with God. And, uh, Of course, what is, they have solved that problem, never had that problem in Zoroastrianism, because the whole thing says God is all-knowing. It is, because Ahura Mahoda is a masculine-feminine dyad, actually, so it's better to refer to it as just by name or as in sort of it, as a mm. principle although many people call it he, uh, nevertheless, but it is really that. Uh, Uh, Ahura Mazda is all-knowing, absolute consciousness wisdom. Uh, it is also all-good, as in Greek philosophy, we see that they picked up on that and said, what is the highest, Plato said, what's the highest of all things? It is the one, it is the good, it is the light, right? So the, the Greek agathon, the good, is the absolute. Well, that's right, you know, inspired by the Persians. So, but this God is not all-powerful at this time. This God needs some humkars, some co-workers to finish the creation and to uh, win this battle against these 
forces of uh, evil, which are not really, uh, you know, if you've got a cold, a virus, a disease of some kind, they say, well, how much of my body is actually in as far as its total weight is made up of these viruses, these little virus things, very small. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take much of a bad thing to ruin a good thing. And so the power of the bad things, the disruptive forces of disruptive paradigms far exceed their actual power. Much of it comes from uh, our willingness to to believe the, the, the lies that they tell us. But human beings are needed for Ahura Mazda to complete this victory against these entities. And so we are necessary parts, the secret weapon, if you will. But that's where we have to, on an individual basis, win this battle within ourselves in order to become effective in making a difference in the world. Right. And so uh, the, this uh, polytheism question is these things, these other gods and goddesses, uh, many of them, most of them, coming from the Indo-European pantheon, sometimes with slightly different names, interpreted names, so that the, the thunderer, sort of the Thor, Donar position, mm-hmm. is held by a god called Verathragna, which means the breaker of resistance. But that's sort of what Indra, and, although they didn't, they, they like to get rid of Indra because that was to them a kind of a god of uh, restrained violence and violence and cruelty. So oftentimes this Western propaganda against the Persians is that they are violent and cruel and despotic. Well, that's funny coming from a culture of Greeks or Romans in which half of the population were slaves, and in Persia they had no slaves. They paid their workers a wage, you know. And yet the Persians are called despots, while the Greeks and the Romans were loved liberty. Yeah, if you were a senator, (laughs) that was great. But uh, it wasn't really... They didn't think it through philosophically, whereas... By the time of Cyrus the Great, around 500 BC, they already had a thousand years of Zoroastrianism, so they thought through some of these philosophical things, even their battle uh, strategies using archers and things like that were things to minimize the violence, actually, whereas the Greeks and Romans like to get in there and bust skulls hand-to-hand combat, you know, yeah. whereas the Persians would say, no, let's kill them from afar, decimate them, they will, uh, we will minimize casualties on our side, bring them, whoever the enemy is supposed to be, to a conclusion more quickly, and we just want to win and and move on, whereas the Greeks and Romans, like, you know, to to their manly virtue was proven in these kind of, even when they made, the Romans made this kind of violence. Entertainment in the Colosseum, right? If you couldn't get to the battlefield, we're going to have it here, these displays of bloody violence as entertainment. So they were very uh, different sort of uh, people. But 
probably on the same route, but nevertheless had developed in different directions. But it's just ironic the way that the uh, the Greeks and Romans charged the Persians with being uh, cruel and despotic when it was actually them that were those things. Well, so, but that's a method that runs through history all the way through until really. up to the right, right. So that, that answer is very important. I think very important to, uh, to that important question, and that mm-hmm. is when people say, well, I don't like monotheism. Well, this isn't monotheism. The other gods and goddesses are real, alive, and and necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, logically and philosophically, uh, one must acquiesce in this concept, or I would think logically, and that's something that's also important in the uh, philosophy of Zarathustra is that it's not like Christian philosophy, if you will, which revels in illogic, right? It's a mystery. Mm. We can't understand it. It makes no sense, but you just have to believe it. That kind of thinking is foreign to Zarathustra, that it is an extrapolation from uh, a logical position. As strange as some of the things might appear, nevertheless, their litmus test, they try to bring it back to, to logic and, uh, and a kind of a rational uh, outlook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is one deity which in the West is a bit better known, and at least in those people who have read Rudolf Steiner, who's, that's Ariman. Uh, where would you say uh-huh. that deity in, in that context? Oh, well, he's that, that is the Pahlavi, or the Middle Persian uh, form of the name Andhra Mainyu, mm-hmm. which means the wicked spirit. Arman is the, the embodiment of the life of uh, of all things that are uh, that are uh, opposed to the human spirit, etc., mm-hmm. uh, and to the development of the human spirit. So, yeah, I see. Yeah, nothing elsewhere. That is, there, there are some fools. I don't think that they really. Well, there are people here in the United States who know they, they want to become the next Anton LaVey or something like that. And so they cast about and they think, oh, where can I find something evil to worship to make you know a new brand name for my satanic movement? And they go, oh, let me see. Nobody's exploited the Persian thing yet, have they? So I'm going to become the Church of Ariman and uh, worship the. the the demons of the Persians said, well, in the West, Satanism can make sense because uh, when you go back to the mythology, this entity, if you equate Satan with a serpent uh, or Lucifer or whatever, it is pro-human. They're saying to the humans, hey, come on, eat of the tree, become uh, knowledgeable and become immortal. This is what you, and that's precisely what Ahura Mazda demands of us. The thing that Yahweh forbids us is the thing that that uh, Ahura Mazda demands of us. And that is, you must become knowledgeable and you must move towards immortality. In fact, you are guaranteed of immortality, but uh, you will, because of your volunteering to come into this state, but you will be tested, obviously, in this life and beyond. But uh, nevertheless, it is a pro-human as opposed to an anti-human thing. So therefore, uh, demons, demonology, demons, uh, Satan can be seen as a hero mm-hmm. to the 
human spirit in the West. Yes. That's quite common. Uh, but Ahriman and the Persian demons can never, ever be seen as heroes. They're the things that are making you stupid. They're the ones that are making you poor and sick. Okay. You know, there's nothing good about it. That's the, what right. the whole uh, nature of the system is. There is mm-hmm. there are good things and bad things, and it's pretty easy for everybody to tell the difference. And if you can't tell the difference, then you, that's just you're you're you've gone around a certain kind mm-hmm. of of bend. But most people, even who are, and I've been involved in left hand path things, and I've never known a true practitioner of one of the legitimate schools of it who were say, well, you know that were trying to be evil or something. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we're this we are doing the good. We are rebelling for the good against the bad. The bad is just something that has become so prevalent in the West under the influence of what most people, if they if they looked at the myth of the Garden of Eden in the uh, Jewish Bible, or in the Christian one, they would say, you know, that Yahweh guy is a sick character. <laughs> and create, it's kind of like a Kafka novel or something. Yeah. I've created these things. The rules are obscure, but if you break them, uh, you know you're going to be punished forever for this, yeah. where some of the elements, the whole Edenic uh, myth was taken from Persian iconography, but totally twisted and misinterpreted to the point that it was... And why? Well, one person recently asked me, why, if this religion is so great, <laughs> how come there are only 300,000 people left of it, as far as the continuation from ancient times? How come it did not succeed as the, the Judaism has uh, continued and then Christianity and Islam and so forth? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have this one word answer, coercion. Okay. That's the one thing that Zarathustra forbade, said you cannot coerce a man into understanding the truth. Yeah. And that's the only true form of religious conversion, if you will. You don't convert to the religion, you revert to it, or you come to understand the true religion of humanity, which is the recognition, the insight of the supremacy of absolute consciousness and the goodness of it. And so, but other religions, Christianity and Islam, primary among them, uh, who become more successful in a geopolitical sense, uh, perfected techniques of coercion, which the Zoroastrians refuse to apply. I see. And so that's uh, because that's all just sham. And so if they had applied coercive methods, then they perhaps would have succeeded in the same uh, manner. But uh, as they as their coercion plays itself out, they become ultimately spiritually impotent, and so perhaps the, co- the the play of the cosmos will be such that what we're doing here now will form a alternative uh, home for people to to return to you know, mm-hmm. in uh, in a way that's uh, ancient and authentic. That it in itself is a very interesting, deep psychological and philosophical question, of course. Mm-hmm. You have said that that question, monotheism, polytheism, I understand the rest religion 
kind of as a bridge. Let's let's make it a bit easy. It's a bit reductive, mm-hmm. but I I put it there like that because I'm coming back to something you said much earlier. You said that the Greeks called the Persians the East already, right? It was the Eastern mm-hmm. region then, and nowadays. By my personal feeling, but I think it's quite a common feeling, the Persian religion still is more seen like a Western, esoteric at least, okay. phenomenon and not an Eastern. When we talk about Eastern or Western traditions, East is Hinduism, Buddhism, Zen and all that. But okay. the Persian religion and the Persian traditions, don't you think they would be today taken more to the Western tradition? Yeah, well, I uh, see that the whole thing is uh, resolved in a reinterpretation of these directional symbols, and that uh, what we, uh, what all of us, what Europeans and whether they are uh, Romans, Greeks, whatever, as well as the Persians, as well as the Vedic Indians, at least, are part of what I would call. If you looked at a map and where peoples had their origins and where they went, is a northern tradition. At one point, the Indo-Europeans sitting up above the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, and up on the steppes there together before some of them go, go east to Iran and to uh, to India and uh, to, to the borders of China. Uh, and then others come west and go south down to the Hittites and all that. But they come from the north as opposed to the southern traditions of Egypt and, and of Mesopotamia, the Sumerians, Akkadians, etc., and uh, Semites and such. So uh, really we are at one uh, as northern traditions. And then, uh, yes, because the, really the difference between the, the Persians and the Greeks was, was, was uh, minimal. A lot of the aesthetic differences were just having to do with what styles they chose to borrow from, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that, that's really there. They're part of sort of one thing. But the Greeks and the Romans made for this uh, dichotomy or this idea of the, the evil East. And they were thinking of the Persians and the Persians only, the, the Indians and the Chinese and others, which we now think of as the East, obviously, uh, were completely unknown or virtually unknown to them. But uh, much of what we uh, get from the so-called East, or what we think of as the East, even uh, like Buddhism, probably has its roots in uh, in Zoroastrianism also. Uh, uh, Zarathustra himself, writing about 1700, not writing, but reciting and composing about 1700 B.C., uh, mentions in his Gathas that silent meditation is the surest pathway to wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and where does uh, Buddhism really take root? Where does it come and, and really go from? And not in India, really. It has to go north up into what is today Afghanistan, into the sort of the Persianate world. And it's from there that it goes to China and Japan and through an eastern, through the Silk Road routes uh, to the east. And that's where it is. It really has its home. And people have looked at this, at Taoism and the yin and the yang and all of that sort of thing and has the cultural uh, absorptions of that. Now, 
what uh, we know is that uh, Zarathustra founded something called the Masmaga, which is means great fellowship, and that's the means by which the texts, the the, the, the mantras, the, the verbal formulae were transmitted from. Uh, teacher to student for centuries and millennia, and this formed the great fellowship. And part of it was that uh, they would go into other lands and insinuate the ideas, and I think this is, was largely a failing proposition, but it was something they attempted to uh, insinuate themselves or ideas of the good into people's uh, cultures without trying to uh, be boastful, prideful, etc., and say, listen, you need to be Zoroastrian, you need to learn the ways of Zarathustra. Rather, they would say, well, let's uh, uh, take your mythology and try to make it better. Right. And uh, it's been noted by uh, historians of religion, etc., that Judaism was completely reconfigured under Persian influence at the time of the so-called Babylonian captivity. Mm-hmm. This is probably where things like Kabbalah and the things that, for example, some of the earliest scholarly writers on Kabbalah, such as Adolf Frank, this French writer from the 1840s or something, when they started to study it scientifically or from a religious historical perspective, said, where did this idea of emanations and such things come from among the Jewish people? This has nowhere to be seen. It's nowhere to be seen in this religion until a certain moment. And that was at the time of contact with the Persians during the time of Cyrus. When Cyrus came, liberated the the Jews from Babylon and repatriated them back to Jerusalem and helped them build the the rebuild their temple, financed it because he said these people, you know, going to be good allies or whatever. And so uh, he was great. An entity, a person called in the Old Testament called. The, the Messiah, the Messiah, mm-hmm. is Cyrus the Great, because he liberated the people. And he conquered Babylon without, without killing anyone through psychological warfare. And part of the way he did it was saying, I give all credit to Marduk, your God. It, it wasn't necessary for me you know, to take credit and lord it over people. These poor Babylonians were thinking, he's going to kill half of us, enslave the rest of us, you know, and do all sorts of horrible things, because that's what we would do to him if we conquered him. But yet he said, no, worship your own gods, continue on. You know, this is what we have, and if you're sort of, if you're interested, you're welcome. But if not, you then carry on. And that's this idea of non-coercion, really and truly, in realpolitik, uh, really practiced, not just lip service given, but rather actually practiced. Yeah, that reminds me of that so, theory by the Egyptologist Jan Asman, who I'm sure you're aware of, 
um, uh, who said that it was monotheism which created the fights between religions, because before that, mm-hmm. each religion would maybe integrate the deities of an, of a conquered people, but would not try to erase a religion. And it was only monotheism, um, starting with Akhenaten, mm-hmm. as he puts it, um, who right. started to make religious wars, so to speak. Right. Well, that's only if you say, well, you have to, uh, that if I force you to worship my God, that's good. That's, that's, that's a, that's a kind of an accomplishment. I, I, you know, that's, if that's what it takes, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh, rather, if you have the non-coercion philosophy, then you just say, this is what I, how I live and this is who I am. And you're free. You're free at each moment in your life to make the choice. This a choice of Adam between choosing good and evil, which which, of course, Yahweh just saw as obedience and disobedience. Mm-hmm. No, the choice between good and bad at every moment. We have this choice between the, a, a good choice or a better choice and a, and a worse choice or a bad one. And we have that at every moment of the day throughout our entire lives and beyond, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, so that is what is... Uh, needs to be conveyed to people and this and, and and become an example for a better choice and liberate people to make their own choices and then that's all you that's all you you one can do uh, many other things may be in the hands of higher uh, powers which magic seeks to invoke and bring to bear on the world to uh, to make things better you gave me a perfect link here to one more question about the practice and you were talking much earlier in this interview about those angels or uh, those powers of which are linked mm-hmm. to each day of the year, right? Um, right, in right. Practice. And that reminds me a bit of writings and practice also by Franz Barden, who also mm-hmm. uses those angels of the day. I'm simplifying now. Uh, do you see any link there or is that... Oh, yes. Well, that's the, one of the main, main things where you say original magic and you see, uh, well, what do you mean by original magic? Well, this uh, form of magic, which is common in, in grimoires or whatever from the Middle Ages and because they're rooted, you find them in Arabic, which are really translations or uh, Islamizations of Persian ideas where the sort of the zodiac and the degrees of the zodiac are uh, ascribed to to various angelic beings. That's exactly what this uh, Mazdan system is. That's the original one. This is where it comes from. Mm -hmm. That's why the Greeks and Romans thought the uh, uh, Persians had invented astrology and that Zoroaster was this great astrologer. They were uh, observers of the heavens, hence this idea of uh, the story in, in the Gospel of Matthew where the three magi come and uh, yeah. honor the, uh, the Christ child. Well, that's this idea. This was a, a way they put that in that book because they said these people, these magi, these Zoroastrian priests are the gold standard, if you will, of religion. Everyone knows they are the most prestigious people. So we have to have a story there that says they think our guys are great. 
is good, etc. And so, but the idea that they're observing the stars and the heavens and this kind of thing. Now, what I, what the star actually was, if there was one, was something that was uh, possible that uh, that they observed the night sky, and if there was a nebula or some kind of conjunction or all kinds of different things in a certain constellation, for example, in this case in Aries, which was ascribed to Judea and that part of the world, that that this meant that a Sayoshant, a savior, a great teacher, uh, would be born in this place uh, or uh, at this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was something that this idea of a of saviors of, of course, we're familiar with that. You think of bodhisattvas and avatars and all that kind of thing. But the, really, the oldest form of this we know of is in the Persian system, where they talk about sayoshants, which are saviors, people who come or beings which who incarnate, who uh, are here to teach and to make the world better and to give new information and that sort of thing. And at the end of time, there'll be this great Sayoshant. And the whole ideology of uh, the final battle, the savior of the world, and all this kind of thing is all from Zarathustra. But but again, it's when a religion such as Islam or Christianity turn these great myths into not points of light, but methods of coercion and instilling fear and manipulation, then that's a misuse of the myth. Of the myth. Yes. So uh, that's well, bad. It is all fascinating. I'm, I'm afraid we will soon have to wrap it up, Dr. Flowers. I would yes. like to ask you one final question looking into yes, the future. What are your upcoming book projects or other projects you would like to talk to us about and what can we look forward to coming out of your pen in the future? Okay, well, I'm, uh, I am just finished a book on uh, the god Woden, Wotan, mm-hmm. and that will be quite a big uh, study. Just finished uh, producing it now, uh, final stages. And uh, with Inner Traditions, we have uh, books coming out, the uh, new editions of my Fraternitas Saturni book. Yes. And uh, one on, called Rune Might, which is an old book of mine, has been updated and improved about the uh, German rune magicians of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. That's uh, coming out. And uh, I'm also working on a book uh, about uh, esoteric interpretations of uh, American horror films of the early 20th century before mm-hmm. 1975. Uh, many fascinating things. When in the olden times, when before. Uh, there was a phenomenon in America, which I was part of, uh, in the 1960s, uh, where little kids were fascinated with horror films. And we mm-hmm. saw horror films, we watched them on TV, and we had magazines that, you know, uh, talked about them. And they, we were called, the, or became called, the Monster Kids, <laughs> because we were all into monsters. And But... The people who made these old movies in the 20s, 30s, 40s, they the people who made them were not into horror films and stuff like that. They were 
just really coming up with these things sort of deep within themselves, almost like a Rorschach test of the culture. So the things you see in these old movies uh, are really put there almost unconsciously so they can be interpreted in a hidden kind of way. After a certain moment in time, when the monster kids started making movies, we were very well aware of the what we were doing. And so there's no unconscious elements there anymore. It's all really pretty much out in the open and nothing to interpret as hidden meanings or anything because nothing is being hidden. And so I have undertaken this new idea, I think, of interpreting these things. And a lot of them have to do with the literature that was based on Edgar Allan Poe and, of course, Frankenstein and all these kinds of things. So that's a book I'm working on now. And uh, others, I usually have three or four books working at one one time. Many things to watch out for there. Many things, many, many things. But, uh, yeah, those are intertraditional books. I have a book that's just come out. It's really one of my older older books, but no one, virtually no one saw it because mm-hmm. it was published at a time I didn't have much uh, resources at that time. It's uh, been published by a new uh, publishing house called Arcana Europa. Okay. Arcana Europa. And it's the Northern Dawn, a history mm-hmm. of the reawakening of the Germanic spirit. And this is the first volume of a three-volume uh, study about the reawakening of Germanic spirit uh, in, uh, and uh, so to put this in in the context of, of history and this volume deals with the the origins and ancient manifestation in the, in the medieval period in which a lot of these ideas were really sort of maintained and held on to even within a Christian overlay. And then subsequent volumes will talk about the revival of Germanic religion up to the present time. So, uh, but that's a new book and a new publishing house I want to uh, alert people to is going to be doing a lot of interesting things. Arcana Europe. My books, a lot of them that are uh, available on, on Amazon, etc., but you can also go to my website, uh, seekthemystery.com mm-hmm. to find uh, books, and uh, that's that's sort of my overriding philosophy and everything that I do is uh, is summed up in the old Norse phrase, Reintilruna, which means seek the mysteries, because that's what is so so much a part of our human spirit to do that. And by seeking them, we, we, we get more and more clarity as we seek the unknown. Absolutely. Well, that sounds yeah. like a perfect phrase to wrap it up, Dr. Flowers. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with okay. us today. It was Thank great you, to have you. Thank yeah. you. And uh-huh. I'm looking forward to hopefully have you back one day with some other interesting topic to talk about. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen, for your time and for your interesting insight you gave us in this interview. And apologies that this interview took over half a year to be released. I hope you all enjoyed. What I like about this book in particular is that it is a great combination of practical advice and historical background and it has a readable and practical length. You will find all the details on the Thoth Hermes website. 
And now let's get to a couple of other books I would like to present to you. Books and other reviews. The first one that I would like to introduce to you is called Heart Vision Tarot's Inner Path by Michael Orlando Yaccarino. Another tarot book, you might say? And yes, of course, it is another book on the tarot. And as a base, it also uses the well known Raider Weight cards. But to me, the book has a very special touch, and it is not just another book to fill the tarot section shelves of some esoteric bookstore. It is a genuinely fresh and revealing book that is well worth having, reading, and working with. This starts already introduction by the author. In a very clear and straightforward way, Yaccarino presents what this book is all about, what it should be, and also what it is not. The book clearly focuses on the spiritual path deeply rooted inside of each of us. And it wants to help mostly the solitary worker to develop his or her own path across the Book of Toth, as the tarot is also often called. What I really like about this book is that the interpretations of the cards that are given by the author here are on one hand rather new and original, many of them I have never heard of in such a way, and the ideas are really interesting and opened often new path to me. On the other hand, Jacarino is never dogmatic, as many other authors might be. He suggests, he tries to open and provoke your own thoughts about what you see and experience. In my opinion, this is the only way to open the inner path anyway, but with this book, you don't have to overcome an obstacle to get there. One of the reasons why the author is achieving this is that he obtains the wisdom in his book from all kinds of different sources and from a diversity of spiritual traditions. To cite just a few, Hinduism, Crowley, but also contemporary thinkers like Shani Oates and Julian Vane. The book really shows that Tarot is not an old-fashioned tradition, but a living art that lives in our time and really also point towards the future. Its own and ours, of course. Also among the spreads that Jacarino presents towards the end of the book, there are many that I have never seen being done that way, which strongly suggests that they have been developed genuinely by the author. So this book is truly original and new in a good sense. I also like a lot the big number and detailed footnotes, which do not only clearly show the references the author has, but it gives the interested reader an enormous amount of supplementary information to access if he or she wants to do so. What I slightly deplore is that the images of the tarot cards are rather small and in black and white. But this is probably a question of cost for the editor and understandable if you want to keep the book at an interesting price. 
And to be honest, the book is not meant to replace the real tarot deck in your hands. So this criticism is in fact really minor. Altogether, I was very pleasantly surprised to discover this book and can only fully recommend it to all of you. It is not just one other book on the tarot, but for anyone who wants to get a fresh approach on a subject he thinks he already knows all about, just as necessary a read as it is for the starter who doesn't want to be blocked by overcome interpretations and tarot dogmatism. So this is Heart Vision, Tarot's Inner Path by Michael Orlando Giacarino. I promised you a third piece by Aki Sederberg and his friends, and here it comes, before we get to the second review. Here he is again with the group Ma, again from their album Tuch Kan Kantayat. This piece is called Süden Ma, in English Heartland. <laughs> Thank you. 
Finnish group Ma with occultist Aki Sederberg and their song Sudan Ma. The other book I want to present to you is a translation rather than a new work, but there are several remarkable aspects to it. First, I need to talk about Enodia Press, a Mexican publisher which have produced this book in a very nice and bibliophile way. Have a look at the image on the website and see for yourself. The book is a really nice small jewel bound in blue linen with a silver engraving on the front. And this is not the first time that Enodia and Nicolas Alvarez Ortiz present here a long-awaited translation into English of one of the most interesting and exciting German occult texts. This time it is Großer und Gewaltiger Meergeist by Dr. Johann Faust. In fact, this is a grimoire, and it's called in its English translation Dr. Johannes Faust's Mightiest Sea Spirit. It is one of the texts of the large and wide German Faustian tradition. It is believed to have been written in the 16th century, but it is probably about a hundred years younger than that. As its title suggests, the conjurations and the subject that it includes mostly relate to the water element, the sea and its spirits. After a lengthy and extremely erudite and interesting introduction into the text, we find the English translation of the three parts of this document. The first bears the same title as the title of this book. The second is called Conjuration and Call of the Sea Spirit of Dr. Faust. And the third, Veritable Jesuit Coercion of Hell. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? And then you will find as appendices first a ritual called Arcanum Experientia Preciosum and, yes indeed, the full German original text of the work as well. So this small beautiful book does not only give you a full and very detailed and appealing English translation, plus beautiful reproductions of the original illustrations and jiggles, etc. But also as a reference for those who want to see the real source and for those who speak German, all that you need. And this makes this book, in my opinion, quite extraordinary. It is a must-have for all grimoire collectors and for people interested in the Faustian tradition, be it in German or in an English translation. I did receive this book for review a few months ago, as you can imagine, and what worries me a bit is that when I now wanted to create the page on the website with all the links, etc., I realized that the website of Enodia Press, the publishers, was down, and I couldn't reach Nicola via Facebook as previously. Well, hopefully this is only temporary and Enodia will be back soon. It is really worth it. And if anyone know about what's going on or finds a trace where to get this book again, please do let me know so I can complete the reference page on the website.
As it has been so long that we have not done a real news section, there would be lots of other things to talk about. I don't nearly know where to start. So what I will do in the near future is instead of the news section, open a news blog on the Thoughts Hermes website, where it will not only be me who is to present news, but where you can actively participate. So watch out for this. Of course, I will also announce this new blog in one of the coming episodes of this podcast. And the most important pieces of news will always be also ready here in the podcast. And this brings this episode number four of the long interrupted second season of Thought Hermes podcast to an end. Thank you for listening. I hope that once again we were able to give you some interesting ideas and insights into the world of the Western esoteric tradition. We will be back in two weeks with episode number five, presenting American author and occultist Tracy Rollin, talking on the subject of Santa Muerte. I have already recorded a couple of other interviews a few weeks and months ago, and I'm looking forward to welcome more interesting guests here in the near future. Here, there is Wendy Rule again with her night sea journey as usual, and she tells us it is the end of this show. Thank you for listening, and I'm looking forward to you coming back here soon. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.